This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, March 11th. I'm Rob Bluey. And I'm Michaela Stedman. Few issues have animated conservatives as much as Obamacare. But there's a new threat on the horizon. It's called Medicare for All, and it would be a massive government takeover of your health care. I sat down with three medical doctors who are serving in the U.S. House to talk about it and their solutions for a patient-centered alternative. We also have your letters to the editor and a story about a 10-year-old boy who is honoring fallen police officers in a unique way. Before we begin, we'd like to ask you to help us spread the word about the Daily Signal podcast. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share this episode with your family and friends. That will help us make sure that we are continuing to grow and reach more listeners. Stay tuned for today's show coming up next. We're joined today by Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona, Congressman Scott Desjardins of Tennessee, and Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland. All three of them are doctors, and so today's conversation is going to be focused on health care. Now, Congressman, I want to ask about not only some of the problems that we find in health care today, but also some of the solutions that you have. Uh, one of the things that we've seen um, in the initial uh, burst of questions is Medicare for all. Uh, some of your colleagues on the left have put a, quite a radical proposal on the table, and as doctors, I want to ask you to weigh in on what you think about it. Congressman Harris, would you like to begin? Sure. Look, the Medicare for all plan that was announced a couple of weeks ago by my Democrat colleagues, over 100 of them, uh, really will result in care for none. Uh, that's the bottom line. You can't offer free care to everyone and expect uh, anything but rationing to be the result. The costs are huge. Uh, we already have a trillion dollar uh, deficit in, a, in the federal government spending. Uh, to add more to it will, will result in rationing. It, it's, it, when you dissect this plan piece by piece, including the elimination of all private insurance, uh, not even socialized medicine in England uh, has, the, has that proviso. So we go well beyond the socialized medical uh, schemes of, of Europe in the Medicare for All plan. It's just going to be a non-starter. Congressman Desjardins, we actually have a question from Tennessee from Catherine of Murfreesboro, if I'm pronouncing Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro. Yeah. Okay, thank you for correcting me. It says, with your experience in your medical practice, can you explain why Medicare for All is a bad idea when it comes to quality of care, provider satisfaction, fiscal impact, and the patient-provider relationship? Sure. Well, thank you, Catherine, for calling in. It's always good to hear from Tennessee. Uh, I guess when I think of Medicare for All, I think, what can you compare that to? What would it be like? And, and I think right now, a system that everybody knows and is aware of is the, the VA system. And the VA system, in a way, is, is similar uh, for the veterans. And the biggest complaint you hear most times out of the VA system is long wait times or sometimes poor access uh, to specialists. And can you just imagine what it would be like if you turned the whole country into a system right now that we can't handle on a smaller scale? So, you know, I think that the, the relationship with providers would be diminished because access would be inferior. And right now, if you go to a VA and you can't be seen within a reasonable amount of time at that VA, you're farmed out to a specialist in the area. Oftentimes that's dubious too because specialists sometimes are reluctant um, to, to take patients because the payer system is so poor. And so uh, you find it harder and harder to get access to these specialists. So I think, one, the relationship between the patient would be poor, your access to medical care would be poor and delayed. And you know, honestly, I, I think it's, a, it's incon inconceivable that it would even uh, work or get off the ground and be cost prohibitive. But Congressman Gosar, I mean, your, your colleagues on the Democratic Party say that it's so popular. I mean, who doesn't like free things? What are the, the consequences, though, of a policy like this? Well, the thing about it is that when they say it's free, it's always popular, but when they actually 
actually find out how much their taxes are going to be raised, it drops dramatically into the 30% approval aspect. That's the key here, is that nothing is free. But there's alternatives here. Once again, how about market-driven applications that we haven't seen since 1964? You know, in making insurance compete for the marketplace, taking away the Sherman and Clayton antitrust exemptions so that they compete not only for your business, but for the doctor's provisions. All these things can be revolutionized, and who knows what can actually happen. Well, let, let's talk about some of those solutions. Obviously, you come from, uh, you're a dentist, um, mm -hmm. so you, you each have unique perspectives, and I'd like to go down the line and talk about each of you. Uh, in terms of the dental profession, uh, talk both about what Medicare for All would mean and what a, what a market-driven, patient-focused solution is. Well, first of all, uh, dentistry never took on to Medicare. It, it walked away from the Medicare discussions in the late in mid 1960s or 1960s, and therefore, the same dollar you spent in 1970s basically the same dollar you spend today in dentistry with inflationary only. Medicine's nowhere close to that, because what's happened is is there's been cost shifting. What the government hasn't covered, they, somebody else has had to pick up, and that's why you got problems. It, it is a in essence a Ponzi scheme where you're flushing one group of people paying for the services of somebody else's. That's why I keep coming back to market forces. How about getting everybody broken down so they're competing for the marketplace, so that people are patient-focused, patient-friendly, patient-centered, and have the insurance industry actually compete for that marketplace. It's amazing what actually would happen. You see lower premiums, lower drug prices, lower doctor and hospital visits, and it empowers people to create new ideas. So making a market-driven solution is actually beneficial. Congressman Desjardins, you uh, had a family practice, right. so what would it mean uh, for those of you who, uh, those patients you were serving? Well, again, I think access is the, the big thing. There just is not enough to go around. And when, when you consider that Medicare for All would eliminate uh, what over you know, half the country realizes now in an employer-based plan, you know, most people, uh, despite all the, the horrors we've heard about Obamacare, which is really bad, you know, get their insurance through their employer. So it, it would change that and uh, eliminate private insurance altogether, and so people would be left with what the government tells them they could have. And that was one of the biggest problems with Obamacare was it mandated the type of health care you could have, mandated what you had to pay for. So people were paying for things that were more expensive than they needed, and uh, you know that, that left a lot of people on the sidelines or with policies that they couldn't afford, or in the case if they could afford it, they couldn't go to see the doctor because of the deductibles and co-pays. So I think that uh, you know, it really created a struggle among uh, a certain uh, group of people in the country that didn't have employer-covered health care, weren't on Medicare, or weren't on Medicare. So it really picked on a small group who had to disproportionately pay, mm -hmm. as uh, Dr. Gozar said. Well, I, I want to follow up on a couple of those points, but I want to give Congressman Harris an opportunity as a physician. What, what would you say from your perspective? Well, I was in anesthesiology. I still am. I worked with specialists, uh, mostly specialists. I didn't work with primary care doctors in the operating room. And I will tell you, under the current Medicare program, you already have problems having access to specialists yeah. because the payment rates are low. The fact of the matter is when the government determines a payment rate, it's going to determine a low payment rate. You're not going to have physicians going to be willing to do it. So my district is over half rural. It's very hard to find a, a specialist uh, who will, who will uh, see a Medicare patient without getting in line to see it. That's not what Americans expect. That, you know, the Medicare for all is not patient-driven. It's bureaucrat-driven. It's going to be some bureaucrat <coughs> deciding what you need and how to deliver care in your community. It doesn't work. You've got to give the patient's choice. Give them not a one-size-fits-all insurance policy like ACA did. Let them buy an insurance policy that fits them, fits their families. You know, if you're young and healthy, you might choose a catastrophic policy uh, with a medical savings account or health savings account 
give people more options, and let the marketplace work. Now, on that note, though, uh, you have a leading senator, liberal senator, who wants to end private insurance, says that that's the solution that we need to be pursuing. I mean, you're, you're, you're painting quite a different picture. Can you talk to us what that would mean? Sure. You know, look, if you like the DMV, you'll like uh, government-driven uh, health care. I mean, the bottom line is when the government controls something to a monopoly, what they're talking about is a monopoly. Yeah. No private insurance. The DMV is a monopoly. Do you like it? Because if you like it, you'll love Medicare for all. Any other thoughts on that, Congressman? Well, just you know, thinking about what uh, Medicare for all would cost. One of the biggest things we've looked at since uh, we've been in Congress, we all came in together in the same class, uh, was the, the how are we going to pay for Medicare in the future? It's unsustainable in its current form. The, you know, the costs are projected to go up and up and up. And uh, same thing, you know, Medicaid doesn't have enough money. The VA doesn't have enough money. So you've got three government systems that have been failing us all along, and yet they want to pivot and put everybody into a failing system that we can't afford now and make it even bigger. It just doesn't make sense. Well, I, I look at the aspect of what's on the other side. And what, what Medicare for All is actually is victimizing the patient. That's the key is, is that they're forced to do something. How about empowering them? You know, so the second part that I always talk about is HSA reform, where you're actually empowering people to, to invest in themselves. Healthcare is an individual sport, believe it or not. You know, that doctor-patient relationship is very sacrosanct. And so when you empower that, it's particularly when you start looking at empowering those patients to put money aside, and then also maybe looking at redirecting the CSRs, you know, to veterans, you know, to Medicare recipients, to rebuild that marketplace. Amazing what happens when patients are empowered with money to make their own decisions. Uh, I think most people like to be empowered versus victim victimized. Congressman, I'm going to stay with you because we have a question from Arizona. This comes from Bill Williams in Gold Canyon. And he in says, my we, district. In your district. Yeah. He says, we face a massive problem with growing entitlements, as you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and Congress is willfully blind, assuming that most elected officials wish to avoid a future train, train wreck and that solutions will uh, inevitably be needed in time. Uh, what do you think we should start doing to solve this long-term entitlement crisis? Well, first of all, I, I always come back to keeping, keeping it simple stupid. And that is, is break everybody down to the lowest common denominator. I don't think we know what the final solution looks like because we haven't liberated the market. Number one is empowering physicians to new creative markets. That means uh, making uh, insurance industry, which is the primary means of reimbursement, to start competing, whereas right now they're in a collusionary type fashion. There's no necessity for them to branch out to, to put out new market products. Make them compete against each other. That way physicians actually make more. They're empowered to, to be uh, better entrepreneurs, but also to, to put new innovative ideas out there. For example, like starting using you know, the iPad, iWatches, you know, to help monitor patients. There's a lot of different opportunities here. And then I think the other part to that is, is maybe tie in people with high risks to the certification of insurance in like a blind high risk pool. Those shouldn't be scary applications. Those are actually situations that actually work. So we're rewarding people for solutions on those high risk pools instead of pushing them to a side. Thank you for that answer. I, I wanna shift because we've been talking a lot of policy ideas here, but that's part of the equation. The other half is communicating that to uh, the American people. And as we saw in the 2018 election, healthcare was consistently ranked one of the top concerns on the minds of many voters. And when all asked, they trusted Democrats more than Republicans on that issue or liberals over conservatives. So what is it that conservatives need to do to get their ideas across and gain the trust of the American people when it comes to health care. 
Well, Tyrus, uh, Harris. well, I'll tell you if uh, if Medicare for all doesn't <coughs> scare the American public, it will. I mean, you know, there I what what Americans want, and I, I tell I tell people, look. They want coverage, God forbid you have a pre-existing condition, because everybody either has one or afraid they're going to have one and know someone who has one. Once we clear that hurdle and we make it clear that our plans always cover someone with that, and whether it's, a, as uh, Dr. Gosar says, you know, a high-risk pooling mechanism, a reinsurance pooling mechanism like we have in Maryland, we, ju we just have to make sure that American people understand. We've always talked about that. Our American Health Care Act had it in it. We made sure that, it, that God forbid you have a pre-existing condition, you're covered, you have some coverage. But, f but for other people, you've got to make it affordable. And, and th that's the most important mechanism. People need it to be, make sure that they can get it and make sure it's affordable. Now I will tell you, if a state wants to ma make universal health care and wants to pay for it, God bless them. I mean, I'm a federalist. Let, let them yeah. go ahead and do that. Vermont and California thought about it. And they both rejected it, both very liberal states rejected it because of the huge cost of a government-run program like this. Congressman Desjardins, how are you communicating this to your constituents? Well, yeah, I think we're at a real messaging disadvantage, and we have been, you know, certainly since President Trump took office. If you look at the coverage of anything President Trump has done, it's about 90% negative, sure. as compared to President Obama, who was maybe 20% negative. Uh, so, you know, that's a hurdle that we face. And, and I think, like uh, Dr. Harris said, if the people really understood what Medicare for all meant, that it doesn't just mean free health care, that they would be very frightened by it. So, you know, messaging has always been key, but, you know, President Trump has taken some great steps already uh, to, to solve the health care problem. We got rid of the individual mandate when we uh, passed the tax reform bill that people are enjoying uh, now. And and uh, he, he's also dealt with uh, the pharmaceutical companies to bring more drugs to generic price. It doesn't make sense that here in America we pay two or three or four times as much for the same drug you can get in Canada, Mexico, or other place in the world. So he's taken steps to address that. And then, you know, the association healthcare plans where these people who don't have insurance through their employer, they can band together and actually find lower premiums. And I think, you know, Dr. Gozar brought up two really good points. The health savings account empowers people. They don't realize that they have a card that they can swipe when they go to the the doctor and they, they pay for it right then and there and that's money that they put in an account that's tax deferred. Tax deferred. We need to expand those and uh, you know we've taken a lot of steps. He mentioned the high risk pools. States like Maine have successfully done that and that was you know center in the debate but we don't get a fair and honest debate in the mainstream media. No you certainly don't Congressman Gosar. Well I think it is is that we actually have to bring the debate forward is is that instead of playing defense we have to go on the offense and, and these this group of gentlemen right here were very responsible in regards to having those, those solutions that actually lowered rates, gave patients choice, and uh, took in pre-existing conditions. These three guys were actually re responsible for that. So we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should be actually going towards that. And I think anytime you look at the application to say, listen, you know, the British system is, is failing, the Canadian system is failing, aren't we better than that? And when we start looking at the, the market-driven solutions, we haven't had a market-driven solution since 1964. It's been artificially based on government reimbursement rates. Aren't we better than that? Can't we do something better that empowers the patient, empowers the doctor, and recreates that system where patients are responsible, doctors are responsible, but there's an open market out there? I think when you start to look at that, it's, it's enticing about what can possibly be happening. Get people dreaming again. Last year, a federal district court in Texas ruled that Obamacare was unconstitutional. Can you bring us up to speed on what that means about the, the future of this debate on health care and where you might expect that case uh, ultimately to end up, Congressman Harris? Well, you know, the, the background is that, of course, uh, the, the 
landmark ruling, which uh, Chief Justice Roberts, we think, took the wrong side on, was, was declaring that since it was a tax, the individual mandate was a tax, therefore it was, it was legitimately, uh, the process was legitimate. Once we removed the tax by removing the individual mandate in our, in our, in our uh, reconciliation bill, uh, the bottom line is that argument was removed. It's going to be up to the federal courts to say, okay, now that there's, now that there's no tax, is this in fact a legitimate plan? Uh, look, a court could rule now that, in fact, it's, it's out the window. It gives us a chance to learn the lessons. What did we learn? We learned that the American people really, really want coverage for pre-existing conditions and make it clear to them that that exists. We, we learned it. We're going to do it. We also know that, that that scheme was unaffordable because it didn't share risk across broad uh, categories. We, we learned a lot from it, so I'm not scared of, of a federal judge saying that that's unconstitutional because we have a lot of knowledge. Uh, hopefully this time we would have a bipartisan solution because when you enact anything this large in the government, nothing works over time unless it's a bipartisan plan and the ACA was clearly not a bipartisan plan. Congressman Desjardins, President Trump just spoke at CPAC and, and said exactly that message, that he would like to bring together Republicans and Democrats to have a bipartisan solution to health care. Do you think that that's possible? Well, I think it should be, because health care should be a nonpartisan thing. When I was in practice, I never treated a Democrat or a Republican. I just treated patients. And I think that's the way most people look at it, and they're very frustrated with what's going on in Washington with the bickering. So I would like to think we could come together on this. It's going to be uh, a difficult road, but certainly we're sitting here willing to have those conversations. Congressman, goes, go ahead. Uh, yes. Well, I think it's how you creatively get this done. I think, you know, what the, one of the first things I brought up was breaking down the antitrust uh, exclusion for the medical insurance industry. That's not a Democrat or Republican application, and I think bringing that up in this, in this partisan foil or in this atmosphere, no one's going to vote for their insurance company over their constituents. So this is a golden opportunity for that ball to drop. Number two is, why isn't the Senate having that conversation about HSA reform? You know, the Hoover Institute said that it was the next best thing that we could do after the tax reforms that we passed last year, or in 2017. So why not have that conversation right now, preemptively have that, empowering patients? Who is going to actually say no to patients controlling their destiny on their health care with their own tax dollars? Interesting. And if you're creatively looking at CSRs, everybody wants to spend the money, so it's spent. Why not creatively build it so that actually people are empowered uh, to be fundamentally part of the system instead of being victimized again. So I think there's some ways that we can change the ground rules, even in this partisan uh, climate, that you actually set up a success instead of looking at being victims again of the system. Congressman Gosar, this comes from, for, to you again. It's from Bill Casal of Prescott, Arizona. And he said, the radical left controls the agenda and they seem only interested in endless witch hunts against the president and pushing socialist programs. He thanks you for being a stalwart conservative, but asks what we can do to move beyond some of the headlines and get to these serious issues. So once again, one of the things that we've actually done, and Bill, it's a great question, is, is that how do we set up the system? How do you work the system for your benefit? So once, looking at what I just brought up forward, now we're seeing the introduction of McCarran-Ferguson, which is that repeal of the Sherman and Clayton antitrust exemption, in the Senate. Amazing. And it's bipartisan. So who is going to stop that? Once again, the same thing we're asking over in the Senate is start the conversation about HSA reform. So there's a way when you have a divided government to steer that conversation so that people are actually having that conversation and having to vote on it. Any other follow-up comments? 
Uh, look, th this, this issue is not going to go away until, yeah. as you suggested, uh, the Supreme Court rules one way or another. And in a divided Congress now, the only solution are bipartisan solutions. Uh, and, you know, we'll have another election. We'll discuss it again next year, and I'm sure people are going to watch. Great. Well, if we could do a lightning round, I, I'm getting some questions that are not on the topic of health care, but are quite pertinent to uh, debates that we're having in Congress right now. So I'd like to ask you uh, some of those. The first one is about uh, efforts to protect human life. Uh, of course, the Senate had a, a vote that failed on the, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. I know there's a move here in the U.S. House on a discharge petition. Uh, there, are, there are other things that uh, you're, you're trying to do in terms of asking for unanimous consent on this consistently. What can you update our, our listeners? on in terms of what's going on with that legislation? Well, I mean, Congress we're waiting. I mean, we're waiting for the clock to run out on the uh, on uh, the uh, petitioning, uh, the bill to Which the should floor. be mid-April. Right, which should be around mid-April. But, but I think every uh, member uh, of Congress uh, should have a position. Obviously, the Senate, every, every member of the Senate is now on record. Uh, fortunately, a majority of senators, but not a large enough majority to proceed to debate and uh, final passage, uh, thinks that it is, uh, that it is wrong to have a baby born alive and not do everything you can to keep it alive. Uh, having worked in the delivery room, seen thousands of deliveries, I can't imagine a baby being born and everybody not rushing to it to see to it that, that it's going to be resuscitated and, and living. I can't imagine that kind of world, but apparently a minority in the Senate can't imagine that kind of world. I want to see if it's a, if it's a majority minority in the House. I, I hope the Speaker uh, has, the, has the courage to put this up for a vote. Let people, yes or no, do you think that's appropriate? Mm -hmm. Well, I would look at it and I would advise and warn the American public that if you can do this to the innocence of a child, they will do it at the other end of the life spectrum. So if you think this is not binding to you as an aged in, uh, American, it actually implies that you're another victim of the circumstance. So remember, you know, on Medicare for All, if, if you're a burden to the system, in this scenario, you're easily eliminated. Congressman Gosar, stay with you for a moment. We have a question from Myrna Lieberman, also of Prescott, Arizona. She says, I believe Dr. Gosar is the lone voice in Arizona for the need to get a border wall in place. Does Dr. Gosar believe that is going to happen? Well, there's, uh, remember, it, uh, the, the president has about $4.5 billion at his disposal even before the emergency funds. So he's actually going to be building that as he promised. It's sad, though, that uh, so many people um, don't understand the emergency that's on our southern border. The affluence of, that you're seeing, the uh, uh, different diseases coming in, measles, mumps, uh, bacterial resistance, tuberculosis, uh, uh, typhoid. This is an emergency coming in here. I mean, and you look at the sheer numbers coming across now uh, that were being now being reported. This is an emergency of umpteenth degree. So you either address it as individuals in leadership or are you become victims of it. And I'm tired of those people from around the country, from New York and other states, that don't believe that you know an infrastructure project in my backyard, our backyard, is very important. So uh, Andy Biggs, by the way, is also a big supporter. So yes. I'm not by myself. <laughs> okay, thanks for, for that, uh, Congressman Desjardins. This is this week. The House is considering a measure HR1 uh, for the People Act. It's titled. Uh, you've had some uh, opposition, even from the left, the ACLU coming out against <laughs> it this week. Uh, what can you update our listeners on in terms of what the bill would do and uh, and, and why conservatives need to be concerned? Well, basically, the Democrats have taken all the reasons they weren't successful in last uh, 
election and tried to rig the game in their favor. So to me, you know, this is more of a show vote on their part. It's dead on arrival in the Senate. But uh, it's, it's, it's just part of a poor loser syndrome. And, uh, you know, they, they're wanting to say that people in this country shouldn't have to show an ID to vote, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, almost everyone I know has to have an ID to do almost anything. And that's you know, one of the most fundamental, important things we do is vote and have the vote be reliable. So they're basically trying to loosen the restrictions and let people who are, are not eligible to vote vote to try to you know, tilt the advantage to their favor. So, you know, I, I think that uh, the bill is a desperate attempt on their part to try to rig the game. As we uh, wrap up our t session today, I want to ask each of you from your own experience as a doctor to, to share with our, our listeners um, what it was about that experience that, that perhaps motivated you to come to Congress here and, uh, and what message you'd like to leave with them uh, in closing as, uh, as we think about this issue of health care. Congressman sure. Harris, you begin. Sure. Th this is simple. Uh, when I was trained um, almost 40 years ago, uh, the bottom line is the, the relationship between the patient and her doctor was the most important. That was it. Fast forward to now. You got an insurance company in the room, you got a government bureaucrat in the room, you have a, a pharmacy benefits manager in the room, you got all these outside parties that are now involved in that relationship. We have got to come full cycle and restore it to the primacy of a patient and her doctor. That's it. Thank you. Congressman yeah. And uh, you know, there were a lot of doctors that came in in our class. I think there were six of us, and we probably all pretty much agreed, different specialties, but in my case with primary care, you know, that, that relationship was paramount. When somebody came in, you know, they didn't want to just talk about what was wrong with them. They wanted to talk about football or hunting or their children's sports, and you had time to do that in the good old days. You had time to actually be a doctor, get to know them, and uh, in that conversation, you tend to elicit more information because the history is so important when treating patients. Well, with the government intervention, you know, that's getting pushed aside, even with the invent of uh, medical records, which maybe made things more efficient, but it made them more impersonal. And anybody who had a doctor pre-electronic record knows that the doctor spent time examining you, talking to you, and not just tapping on their keyboard, inputting data to satisfy Big Brother. And so, you know, I think that when my patients started complaining about the government, about health care, and all the problems, instead of, you know, the, the common things they talked about, I knew that there was a problem in our government, and I felt compelled to try to do something about it. I think the biggest key was is that people wanted individualized uh, health care. It was personalized to their needs. They, they may, what I may want is different than what Andy may want. And the physician always tried to tailor that. But when the government got involved, that went away. And so what I think is magical about the doctor's caucus is, is that in order to solve a problem, we had to ask the patient, what hurts, how can we help you? So a lot of the suggestions that we've brought forward to today and, and continue to bring forward have come from Main Street, from you the patient. And we're trying to empower you to get back your health care, making everybody accountable, make you centered and focused. And when the market competes on you, making sure you're satisfied with the decisions you make, we all win. I'd like to thank those congressmen for sharing their unique perspective on the issue. Michaela, we've been hearing a lot from our listeners about Medicare for All and some of the threats to government health care. So it's nice to take a step back and, and hear about some of the solutions. You can find a full transcript of the conversation at DailySignal.com if you'd like to read it. Now stand by for our letters to the editor, which are coming up next. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. 
Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature our favorites on this show and in our Morning Bell email newsletter. Michaela, who's up first? John Pipes writes, Dear Daily Signal, I am white and will never be able to truly understand what it is like to be black. No more than a black person can understand what it is like to be white. That being said, I will never understand why blacks in America vote for Democrats. The Democratic Party was the party that backed slavery. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Today, more black babies are aborted than any other race, and the Democrats are there cheering it on. At every turn, the Democrats are there to deprive those who can't vote, first slaves and now unborn children, children who mostly happen to be black. And Steve Fowler writes, The once great state of Virginia has fallen to an incredible level of vulgarity and barbarism. If you are so stupid as to have voted in racist liberals and Democrats, you should be shamed and ostracized. Those people support racist ideologies and the murder of babies. What are people in Virginia thinking? Before you vote, you should investigate the candidates and stop succumbing to peer pressure and liberal talking points. Your letter could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave a voicemail message at 202 608-6205. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for the agenda on heritage.org today. For the good news portion of this podcast, Michaela has a heartwarming story to share with us. I sure do. Thanks, Rob. In 2017, Zachariah Cartledge ran with firefighters and police officers during the Tunnel to Towers 5K in Orlando, Florida. Zachariah was inspired by the men who ran with him in their full gear. Now, 10-year-old Zachariah has made the decision to run one mile for each officer who died while on duty during 2018 and 2019. I just really wanted to honor police officers because they do so much for us in the community. And the hate that they're giving is just really unacceptable because they do so much for us. And when I hear an officer pass away, it just breaks my heart. Along with planning to run hundreds of miles this year, Zachariah has asked for people to prayerfully consider donating to his cause. His original goal was to raise $100 for each fallen officer in 2018, for a total of $15,000. He's already exceeded expectations with over $31,000, which is more than double his goal. These donations will go toward the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, which was founded by the Siller family. The foundation was created following the death of New York City firefighter Stephen Siller. Siller lost his life in the tunnel to the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001. You can follow Zachariah as he honors fallen officers on his Facebook page named Running for Heroes. 
I don't know lots of people that can take a bullet for anybody they don't know in the community, and it's just an amazing thing, so I really wanted to honor them. Thanks for sharing that story, Michaela. Inspiring as always. We'll be sure to leave a link in the show notes so people can follow up and make a donation if they'd like. For sure. We're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast comes to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network along with our other podcasts. All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to listen every weekday by adding the Daily Signal podcast as part of your Alexa flash briefing. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to others. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel. Have a great week. You've been listening to The Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.